Good evening. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and that is Dr. Karen Eifler. And, uh, and we are the directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture uh, here at the University of Portland. And uh, this is the coming attractions portion of our program this evening. I think many of you will be aware that there's a fascinating play called Mad Forest by Carol Churchill. It's a main stage production of uh, the University of Portland happening uh, in the Mago Hunt Theater these days. And on Saturday at uh, 6.15, all ticket holders for the play that evening will be most welcome to attend a wine and cheese reception and panel discussion about the play, free, uh, that takes place in the Mago Hunt Recital Hall just across the corridor from the theater itself. And uh, we do one of these for every main stage production uh, at the university. And it involves uh, wine and cheese, but also a panel of three uh, University of Portland experts who talk about the play from the perspective of their own disciplines. And each of them is given exactly eight minutes. And uh, it's, it's great fun. Uh, Dr. Eifler uh, is, is very strict about keeping them to eight minutes, which is difficult for some of them who are accustomed to uh, discoursing at greater length. Uh, but, but we find that when folks come along uh, for one of these evenings, they see a different play than they would have seen otherwise. So that's coming up this Saturday. And then after that, um, the uh, Garaventa Center uh, kind of changes mood and, and takes a more contemplative mood as we uh, enter into the great liturgical season of Advent. And our keynote uh, event during that period is uh, Visio Divina, which is uh, a meditative form of prayer based on contemplation of the, uh, the beautiful uh, artwork uh, imagery from the uh, St. John's Bible, uh, of which the University of Portland is very privileged to have uh, a copy of the first fully calligraphed, callig that's a hard word, calligraphed um, Bible uh, in 500 years. Uh, so uh, those, uh, those special prayer services happen in the Chapel of Christ the Teacher on Wednesdays at 12.45 p.m. starting on uh, November 30th. If you have friends who would have liked to have been here this evening but were unable to, um, we are going to have a podcast of Father Claude's talk, which will be available in a couple of days. And, of course, you're also free to listen to it again in case you miss any of the, uh, the finer points. There is a sheet over on that table over there where if you are a K-12 through teacher, you can sign up for PDUs. Professional Development Units by Special Arrangement with the University of Portland School of Education. Uh, so if you're a teacher, that's a big deal. So uh, you can sign up for those, and uh, if you do, they'll be off into the, into the mail to you uh, probably tomorrow morning. So uh, be aware of that. And you can also sign up, if you'd like, for our uh, podcasts and newsletter, things like that. Well, I have the uh, privilege of uh, introducing our speaker this evening. I first uh, met uh, Father Claude Pomerleau um, 35 years ago when he was my first spiritual director when I was a newly minted seminarian. At that time, he was already a professor of political science uh, at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, he is now a, a political science professor emeritus of the University of Portland. So obviously, uh, with 35 years of friendship, I could say a lot about uh, Father Claude, but this isn't the time or place to talk about him uh, as a faithful priest uh, and, uh, and religious of the Congregation of Holy Cross, nor really, nor really as a, uh, 
a, a teacher. Um, as a as a renowned mentor of generations of uh, of fine uh, students and young academics that have passed through his care and, and encouragement, or of his musicianship, or his uh, love of the arts, or of his passion for movies, but it is a really appropriate uh, time and place to uh, mention uh, that in my uh, experience, I've uh, never uh, met anybody who could match the uh, incandescent intellectual curiosity that has characterized uh, in Father Claude uh, over over the decades, and uh, and also a passion for uh, politics, and particularly uh, Latin American politics, in which he has been not only a scholar. Uh, but also uh, an actor. One of our favorite quotations at the Garaventa Center comes, surprisingly enough, from the German philosopher uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, who said that nothing of substance can be achieved without a long discipline in a single direction. Here, uh, this evening, we... Uh, are going to experience a kind of example of, uh, of such a long, passionate uh, discipline. And so uh, it's my uh, great pleasure to introduce to you and ask you to welcome, freshly returned from explaining the American presidential election to the Chileans, <laughs> Father Claude Pomerleau. likely that my uh, presentation is going to say more about me than you could possibly say, and this is very self-revelatory. So I should start out by saying, uh, Salam Aleikum. Thank you. Uh, and God be with you. Uh, the title is slightly changed. Uh, I, I gave the title, Religion and Politics, Globalization and Liberation, the French Connection, because that makes it more personal for me, and uh, some of my students here will know why that is. Former Congressman Tip O'Neill was famously quoted as saying, all politics is local. After years of contact with Latin American church personnel and members of religious communities throughout Mexico, Central America, and the Southern, and the Southern Cone countries of Latin America, I would also like to add that all religion is also local, with a nod to Cardinal Casper, in spite of all the claims to universality, with a nod to Cardinal Ratzinger. Tonight I share with you how I was first introduced to a group of motivated idealists, missionaries who were also religious professionals from France. These French missionaries, professionals of the 1960s, volunteered to spend up to several decades of their lives living in foreign nations, far from their home, land, and culture, having to learn a new language and adapting to new customs. They, they went with a vision to change their lives, update their churches, their church, and may, maybe even renew the politics of their new home. It is now 50 years since I began my studies of Latin America and entered into the world of a group of notable religious revolutionaries. I came in contact with these ambitious and idealistic missionaries in the early 1970s as I began my own academic life and they were ending their Latin American journeys and returning to their more traditional and structured ministries in France. Their unique experience based on their origins and visions, on their education and religious and national values, their hopes and frustrations, had a big impact on my way of understanding politics and church-state relations in Latin America, as well as my personal vision and my hopes and my formation. Um, I belong to a group of religious professionals that believe in both a missionary vocation and uh, as a universal call to care for all people in the world in which they live. 
as well as a specific call to respond to a local need, what might be called a hands-on approach to missionary work in a specific locality. As a reader of Jim Holt, the popular science writer and author of Popular Perspectives on the Universe, Why Does the World Exist, is his book. He recently reviewed a book that re-images space and time and scientific theories about everything. I discovered that he, too, is fascinated by a time-honored notion among many physicists that all action is uh, ultimately local, a so-called principle of locality. As he tells it, quote, the world consists of separately existing physical objects, and these objects can directly affect one another only when they come into contact, end quote. However, according to George Musser, author of Spooky Action at a Distance, uh, there is an ongoing debate about those that defend locality and others with an opposite view who believe that the world basically consists of non-local connections, a debate begun by Einstein and Bohr, by the way. Um, the defenders of locality look down on non-locality as voodoo physics, the refuge of the occult. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Since nothing ever seems to be settled in physics, as in religion, and I am obviously not a physicist and not much of a theologian either, I am daring to compare this metaphor of science to the world of the Latin American missionary experience. I use this reference to, uh, to physics as perhaps a lighthearted introduction to the topic of missionaries and their influence. When I was young, I was encouraged to pray for the conversion of the Chinese and of the Soviet Union. Uh, that's religious action at a distance, by the way. Many, uh, Murray Gelman, a famous physicist, dismisses such action, action as at a distance as a flurry of flapdoodle. I love these expressions. When I joined Holy Cross, a missionary community, all the new recruits were encouraged to consider an additional call to be a missionary. Such a specialized call could mean physically moving to Asia, Africa, or even Chile and Peru in Latin America. The task of this new physical locality was designed to make uh, new converts or to strengthen the old ones to build uh, new schools or to teach in existing ones and to prevent Protestant inroads and even oppose communists whenever necessary. <laughs> we all agree that prayer was not enough. Even though we didn't know who the hell Gelman was, we might have agreed to act to, act, uh, to action at, his, at a distance, which was just such a flurry of flat doodle. The French missionaries were all familiar with and admired the spiritual writings of Thérèse of Lisieux, The Story of a Soul, you may have heard of it. Her autobiography, which was instrumental in having her canonized by Pius XI, as well as making her patron of Vatican Gardens and Flowers, though she, thus she is called Little Flower, as well as missionaries, um, patron of missionaries. She was also named co-patron of France, uh, along with Joan of Arc. This saint, who wished to become a missionary herself, she died of TB at 24, deeply believed in, quote, action at a distance, end quote. She was a major inspiration to the French missionaries who worked to transform the Latin American churches, a continent that they considered to be woefully unevangelized. I will return to these missionaries in the, content of my, in the context of my own studies. They were shaped in the spirituality of action at a distance, but also came to believe deeply and personally in the mission of locality. My teaching, research, and publication on the politics of Latin America began with my initial research for my dissertation on the foreign missionary dimension within the Catholic communities of the Latin American Church. Additional research into the domestic sources of Latin American foreign policies brought me back to my original research on church and state relations from Mexico to Chile, Argentina to Brazil. The relationship of religious institutions with the policies and economic and economies of Latin America, 
that I soon discovered, were indeed subtle and complex. If some considered them to be a flurry of flap doodle, many lives and institutions were nevertheless deeply influenced and affected. Before turning to the more salient and evolving religious forces and dynamics affecting policies of selected Latin American countries, I want to make a small detour with a few observations about the re renewed academic uh, and policy focus on the role of religion in the world of global politics in general and for Latin American politics in particular. I see Rene bobbing his head back there. I will, be brief, I will briefly fast forward to the growing discipline of religion and global politics. As ethnic, relig ethnic religious conflicts began transforming our understanding of the politics of Asia and the Middle East, and as religious organizations became more directly involved in the process of conflict resolution and peacemaking, the academic world of international relations and foreign policy analysis began to pay attention. When I studied international relations in the 1970s at the University of Denver, the role of religion in global politics was considered to be nothing more than a source of wars and violent confrontations. From the wars of religion in the 17th century to the Balkans, Middle East, and Africa in the 20th century, scholarship in the past 20 years has re-examined the positive role of religion in peacemaking and conflict resolution South Africa, Chile, and El Salvador human rights in Israel, Rwanda, and Sri Lanka, environment, the bishops on the Columbia Basin, Laudato Si of Pope Francis, etc., diplomacy, Vatican intervention in the uh, near war between Argentina and Chile, a border conflict, research groups in diplomacy and international relations as well. One of the academic centers specializing in the role of religion in IR is the University of Notre Dame. The Mellon Initiative in Religion Across the Discipline sponsored an interdisciplinary group of, of scholars with projects in numerous U.S. and European universities, including DePaul and uh, Princeton and UC San Diego and a number of other places. These have all had a big influence on my own understanding of that area. Two recent books that I consider to be an original source for reinterpreting the extent and limits of religion in this case, liturgy, to society and political policy are Theopolitical Imagination and Torture and Eucharist by William T. Kavanaugh. This may be familiar to a few of you. Torture in the Eucharist has become a religious vade mecum for those in Latin America and Africa trying to explain the role of religion in torture, murder, and disappearances of political prisoners and opponents. Kavanaugh and colleagues define the false, the, um, the false Catholic, uh, Catholicity of globalization and try to identify and critique the religious fault lines below the surface of global politics. Among Kavanaugh's colleagues are numerous Muslim scholars and others who are applying the same analytical tools to explain how globalized capitalism has become a form of neo-colonialism thoroughly penetrating the Muslim world with the arrival of, at Mecca of five-star Hilton hotels and top-of-the-line McDonald's. I now return to the world of Latin American religious politics of the 1960s and 1970s. Some of you here uh, were not yet alive. You'd have to be in your 50s uh, at that time or perhaps only recently arrived in that polarized world when human rights were rediscovered. This began under President Jimmy Carter in the 1970s and was immediately followed by President Reagan in the 1980s with that oft-quoted slogan of mourning in America. That was unfortunately, that slogan, uh, that period, uh, was unfortunately overlaid with evil empires and those armed terrorists known as Contras. For my part, under dark shadow of the Cold War and anti-communist crusades in Latin America, I was beginning to study Spanish in Mexico, traveling to Chile, and finishing my dissertation while preparing to travel to Venezuela, Mexico, Chile, 
Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. Join Holy Cross and see the world, we say. <laughs> My motive for discovering Latin America was to study a select group of French missionaries and to evaluate their roles in the cauldron of Latin American politics and religion. Um, this is a book, uh, some of you may be familiar, Mark Leela, The Stillborn God, Religion, Politics, and the Modern West. A very interesting introduction to that topic. The next part I call Hope in the Time of Global Capitalism. Gabriel uh, Gabriel, that's so funny, Gabriel Garcia Marquez approaches the challenges of Latin American society in his novel Love in the Time of Cholera. I give the title of Hope in the Time of Global Capitalism to the following evaluation of the mission of French missionaries to transform the Latin American churches where they cho chose to serve. Religion and secular institutions have been adapting to shifting bases of power in Latin America from the colonial era with the domination of the Catholic Church, followed by the political struggles for independence in the 19th century. Then came the struggle for separation of church and state, well into the 20th century. Now, Latin American, uh, Latin American nations face a new phase in which economics, pushed by globalization with the shape of the Washington Consensus and with its numerous free market trade deals, dominates the ideological landscape. The response to failed attempts at expanding popular participation and democratizing popular institutions has included political populist demagogues like Perón and Chavez, and bureaucratic authoritarianism like the repressive military juntas of Brazil, of General Pinochet of Chile, and Generals Videla and, and Galtieri of Argentina. The military of, in Brazil staged one of the first violent anti-communist coups, opening the floodgates to bureaucratic authoritarianism in 1964. Argentina had been, and may still be, alternating between partial democracy, to exclude the Peronist party or parts of it, and military dictatorship since the overthrow of Juan Perón in 1954, when social unrest and political economic decline became critical. Chile and Uruguay at that time appeared to be islands of tranquility and surrounding sea of military dictatorship. That illusion would soon change. By the early 1970s, social and political turmoil transformed both of these two legendary southern cone democracies and ushered in a period of brutal and repressive dictatorship. So that's the context. The 40 French priests that I interviewed were distributed among throughout South America, from Venezuela to Ar Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, and Chile. They were mostly in their late 30s and 40s. They had been ordained during or soon after World War II to work in the post-war chaos of French parishes from Lyon to Angers, Besançon to Toulouse. They had all served in the French military in Algeria or in Vietnam, then known as Cochin China. The French invasion and conquest of these two areas of Africa and Asia was considered by French missionaries to be neo-colonial military invasion under the nefarious category of the civilizing and exceptional mission of their country. The French missionaries were sponsored by a French diocesan society, the Mission of France, founded in the early 20th century. It was founded to train and assign French missionaries to all corners of the globe. Latin America was a major gem in that missionary crown. They had been shaped by that public self-image of French culture, the civilizing mission. For the U.S. equivalents of that, and for the political religious mission, uh, missionary ideology shaping Protestant evangelical efforts, as well as Catholics, we would probably refer to American exceptionalism. After examining the origins and impact of their own national self-identity, 
Most missionaries appear to have concluded that this civilizing mission was neither civilizing nor exceptional. In fact, it was a similar for formula that motivated 300 years of Spanish and Portuguese colonialism. These French missionaries searched for new religious formulas that were suitable alternative formulas to those introduced by the previous colonial presence and French tutelage. There's a part here. The French dominated all of the religious formation in Latin America during the first half of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century. Just amazing. Uh, people don't often recognize that, but schools, education, all were dominated by the French and seminaries as well. These formulas were engineered to be both indigenous and related in some positive way to the local religious cultures, uh, as the French missionaries saw it. An important actor in their missionary education was Monsignor Ivan Illich, published scholar, linguist, and, and, and guest member of my own dissertation, as a matter of fact. He was equally influential in my own education. Ivan Illich and Ivan Vallier, sociologist at UC of Santa Cruz, expert on Catholicism in Latin America, joined my dissertation director, John McCammett, to convince me that carefully analyzing this compact group of missionaries would be a useful introduction to the study of Latin American politics. This approach, it was suggested, would be similar to a careful analysis of a drop of water for understanding the larger universe. In this case, the drop of water was the French missionary, and the universe considered of considered, consisted of the changing politics and society in Latin America. This group of missionaries and their strategies would help me to understand and interpret this unique influence on the church-state relations of Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. This group of French missionaries all passed through the controversial Research Center and Language uh, Institute of Ivan Illich, uh, known as CDOC, in Cuernavaca, Mexico. Here, missionaries from Europe and North America were sent to learn Spanish in Latin American customs. The, controversi the controversial part was Illich's policy of radicalizing the participants of that institute. We disciples of Illich, clerical and lay, North Americans and Europeans, believers and doubters, were encouraged to shed the traditional understanding of, quote, saving the Latin American church, end quote, and not to be agents of a civilizing mission of, of France. Most French missionaries were ready to opt for a more radical sacramental approach that was common, if controversial, among French and Latin American theologians, in particular Yves Congat, Henri de Lubac, uh, Henri Couillard, Marie-Dominique Chenu, and in Latin America theologians such as Comblain, Freire, uh, Segundo, and Asman. These ideological ideas and giants helped form the priest worker movement and was shared by many European priests and some French Canadians as well in the 30s and 40s. They were the precursors for the radical understanding of the Eucharist as the sacramental presence of Jesus among all suffering peoples of the universe. Uh, it's a reference to torture and Eucharist of Kavanaugh. The French missionaries became a center of significant pastoral innovation in most Latin American countries where they worked. They worked as a force of change. They chose to operate in defined but relatively broad areas of pastoral activity. They directed their religious and social strategies toward areas directly related to workers, especially the underemployed and unemployed, and to disenfranchised peasants. They encouraged lay people, uh, lay people associated with their mission to assume responsibility for a wide range of church-related social ministries. For this, they organized workshops to prepare lay people for their new administrative tasks. These strategies were eventually formalized as basic ecclesial communities, CEBs, right, Renee? 
<laughs> These missionaries hope to eventually establish a network of sensitive lay leaders trained in Catholic social doctrine and in basic organiz organizational techniques. They process their pastoral approach through local indigenous traditions, especially in Chile, Peru, and Brazil, but always maintain that these local traditions were inseparable from the universal or global church community. In order to achieve these pastoral transformations, these missionaries change their own personal spirituality with the help of the theological sources and experiences similar to those used by the priest worker movement in France, and which were vigorously debated in the Second Vatican Council. Even so, they were not united on how to achieve these goals. They clashed with diocesan authorities, often became isolated from national church authorities. In countries like Chile and Brazil, however, French missionaries were instrumental in forming national Episcopal conferences. But in Argentina, where dramatically different church-state experience dominated, they were excluded and isolated from decision-making. Manual labor took on a sacred dimension and became a powerful symbol for these missionaries. <clears throat> However, they attributed their, their, this sacred character to the worker and to the working class instead of attributing it to work as such. They place this emphasis on the sacredness of workers in the context of Latin American society, which considered workers to be inferior human beings. Gentlemen do not work. It was and still is the case that well-paid manual workers have their jobs, leave, leave their jobs to work with less pay in more respectable clerical tasks with higher status. Manual labor also gave the missionaries independence and self-confidence within a clerical culture of dependence and obedience to higher authorities. Although the French missionaries represented a long and influential missionary tradition, they departed from it in several ways. They took great care to understand the implications and effects of the new pastoral strategies they hoped to establish. They worked hard to avoid imposing foreign religious formulas on Latin American churches. By rethinking their theology and carefully analyzing their pastoral approaches, they responded with various degrees of success to the problems of missionary dependence, religious passivity, lack of local indigenous clergy, and the need for careful evaluation of pastoral strategies. By the early 1970s, French missionaries became increasingly marginal to the social and religious developments of Latin American church communities. Many bishops dismissed French missionaries as harbingers of Protestant churches whose leaders gained support among formerly Catholic communities in working class populations and favelas. And as the growth of Pentecostal churches from the U.S. increased, many Catholic church authorities, even those who were sympathetic to theology of liberation, considered the strategies of priest workers and Pentecostals to be of the same cloth, undermining traditional colonial impositions, especially European and North American Catholic traditions. I conclude, more or less. The French missionaries became a part of the powerful religious and political currents transforming Latin America. They saw their radical reinterpretation of the religious role of ecclesiastical uh, institutions as a contribution to democratic trends in Latin America. Many traditional church leaders disagreed with this. Conservative political leaders and the military wanted to stop them and did so, expelled them from their respective territories and countries, those that managed to escape torture and death. The impact of traditional religion on society is profound and its influence on institutions more complex than ever. The traditional hold of Catholic bishops on their members has changed and has changed the hold of Catholicism on public policy. 
Pentecostal church groups like the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, a homophobic and anti-Catholic and anti-socialist church in Brazil, founded by the uncle of the new mayor of Rio de Janeiro, Marcelo Crivella, uh, and the Pentecostal Methodist Church of Chile, where General Pinochet traditionally celebrated Te Deum, have changed the religious dynamics throughout Latin America. The growth of these Pentecostal churches has not followed a defined political path. Some members who were traditional and apolitical have recently and energetically entered the political realm as mayors, governors, senators, and congressional representatives. Others continue to be socially and religiously traditional and ultra-conservative. However, unlike the strategy of priest workers, they have not yet developed collective and coordinated strategies across national borders. The approval of Pope Francis for the strategies of theology of liberation and his reservations about unbridled global capitalism suggests that the priest worker and liberation theology strategies might be entering a new stage of giving glory to God in the evolving role of Latin American Catholicism. I hoped in this presentation to help establish a link between the French missionaries of the Mission of France with Judeo-Christian political history. For me, this represents a political history energized by an ongoing tension between prophecy and priesthood. Even today, the dynamics of prophecy renews the system and organized priesthood subdues these prophetic intrusions through institutional continuity. The fulcrum that maintains a creative tension between priesthood and prophecy in Western Catholicism is the sacramental system with the Eucharist at its pinnacle. I don't believe that the Vatican has ever played this role. The Pope, as Bishop of Rome, plays an indispensable priestly role by assembling priests and prophets in a council, but does not, as a priestly bureaucrat, always play a transforming prophetic role. The French missionaries represented a focused, if fragmented, group of missionary prophets. They were also self-confident representatives of a, prophetic, of a prophetic priesthood. They embodied, through their lives, that tension between a creative and always a necessarily controversial relationship with the parishes and territories in which they served. They mirrored, mirrored a similar tension which was playing out in violent ways between the new class of bureaucrats, industrialists, and landowners and with the growing disenfranchisement of workers and farmers. The dichotomy was accentuated by the coordination of global markets as directed by Washington, also known as the Washington Consensus, transformed today into the latest, if somewhat tentative, version of the TTP. This kind of pervasive and unbridled globalization of Latin American economies improvised impoverished and marginalized those with whom the French missionaries lived and worked. The social explosions resulting from these destructive inequalities resulted in a new version of personalized dictatorships from Peronism then to Chavismo now and fostered the renewal of colonial exploitation through bureaucratic authoritarianism embodied and established through the military coups of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. So, the French missionaries were both pawns and doves, revolutionaries and traditionalists in a still unfolding drama. Thank you. Uh, Father Claude would be happy to entertain some questions. And while folks are thinking, maybe I could, could ask one to get us started. Uh, what do you regard as the most enduring legacy of those uh, French missionary priests in the Latin American church? Um, 
well, I know what they expected their legacy to be, and that was, um, you know, they entered into working groups and celebrated the Eucharist, uh, as well as little mimeograph things to organize the workers. For them, that was the connection, their legacy, and I, I think um, I would say that, that a, the new pope, who's a Latin American, has seen that that is probably, probably the only way the mass, the Latin American mass, will, masses will ever be regained into an authentic Christianity. The vast majority go to church but have no concept whatsoever. They have their own indigenous spiritualities. And um, they've never been evangelized. Their intention was to re-evangelize. I think they showed a method of doing it, and that method is surviving. I think will survive under a new form. I don't know what that form is going to be. Who else would like to ask a question? Yes, John. Throughout the history of the church, I mean, in religious life, especially in our own community. Uh, Brothers have obviously had uh, a, a very strong kind of worker role in, I mean, more so even than priests. Did brothers have any kind of role in this movement at all in Latin America? I mean, were religious brothers a significant part yeah, of this or no? Charles, you've just opened a door. I, if I had planted you, I would have been able to do it better. <laughs> <laughs> Holy Cross, uh, um, the priest who was the head of our elite high school, St. George's, where I worked for a while, uh, and that the military intervened. They intervened because Jerry Willen was introducing work to the students of the rich. In fact, he brought in animals and planted gardens at this rich elite school, one of the most elite in Latin America. And the only college that was intervened by the military was our Holy Cross College, St. George's. And it was specifically because of this, Jerry Willen didn't study at CDOC and, and wasn't into that, but he was, he was seen as the worst of the theology of liberation in the priest because he was valuing work for these young, rich kids. So that's, that's how, I, I think that's why our school is so outstanding in Chile. It, it continues to attract, it continues to attract elites who, who believe that that, that this is something that needs to be brought into their, their homes. The brothers didn't do this because we, we did have a few brothers, but they, 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 they were more the co-Judah brothers. That's a distinction. That They didn't work. They weren't in schools that much. They did more of that in Peru and in Africa later um, subsequently. Yeah. Yes? I wonder if you talk a little bit about the indigenous movements, the empowerment movements, of the indigenous people who were trying to do things like reclaim land and how maybe the French priests had any kind of connection yeah, with that. Yeah, very little, because the indigenous movement had not yet taken on a consciousness in the 50s and 60s when they were at the height. I was interviewing them, about 40 of them at the time when they were really coming to an end and what they had done. The indigenous movements have started uh, with a different uh, radicalization in every country, but Chile, which I know best of all, the Mapuches, uh, what happened is the, the Mapuches were given their land by Allende in the 1960s, and Allende was overthrown by a military coup in 73. In, in, um, so he started that in 69, 70, 71, 72, and, and even Frey before him had done some of that giving some of the land back to the Indians, the Mapuche, why do we use the word Indians? The indigenous Mapuches. And uh, uh, with a military coup, they immediately took that land away. Pinochet took that land away and arrested the Mapuches and got rid of them. And now the governments are trying to give it back to them. And that process of having their land given back to them briefly, taken away, and then now again being given to them has motivated them to organize. So they've linked in with indigenous movements in Canada and the United States and in, the, in other parts of Latin America. But you know, Mexico, through the revolution in Mexico, has also really energized some indigenous movements, certainly in, the, in Oaxaca and Chiapas. 
the Zapatistas, for example. So there's been a recent development of indigenous groups organizing. PSU, as a matter of fact, has got some connections with, with various indigenous groups in Mexico that, that, that are very interesting. So, um, because I know you work at Penn State University. But, yeah, it's a very slow and complicated, the, the, the missionaries did not enter into that as, as a organized, because uh, uh, the, they weren't organized at the time. So their contact would have been with the working class because they came from a France that had been de-Christianized, loss of workers, and, and they bring that desire to go back with work, workers into the, to the rural uh, who, uh, who, who didn't have any land, uh, the landless um, peasants, uh, many of whom. So it depends whether it's Brazil, Argentina is very different, Chile, Peru, Uruguay. So I studied mostly Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, and, and um, Chile. And, and so in the 70s, when I was doing my interviews, um, uh, a certain the a certain uh, provincial of the Jesuits at the time, who is now Pope, um, was forbidding his priests to go into the, the or was not defending the priests who were being arrested by the by the military coup. And he has talked about this very openly and said how wrong he was and how, how he has learned from this. So it's a very Anyway, yeah, Rene. So, Alfred, thank you so much for the presentation. I was going to ask you two quick questions or, or even just comments. One is, when you talked about that place in um, Institute of Illich in, in, in Mexico City, I, I, you know, you mentioned all these incredible theologians, Chenu, and all these wonderful guys coming on. What were the, for lack of a better word, what was the intellectual political theory training you got? In other words, did you, did, were those people reading people like Jose Marti or, you know, uh, what's his name? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Is, and and the, the Trotskyist tradition was pretty heavy in Mexico, I know. So, that, so I want you to know, what was the training that you got from the political theorist side, not the theological side? Yeah, not the, much at all, because we all came with our own political issues. CDOT was a language school. So you you learn the language, and believe it or not, they were using the manual from the Department of State for, for teaching. Uh, yeah. Uh, because because Ivan Illich considered it to be the best manual for learning for three or four people. So the idea was you had to learn the language and all the nuances, the intric intricacies of the Spanish language. Uh, those that went to Brazil, uh, interestingly enough, still studied that CIDA, which was the Spanish talking. But I, I met a number of the priests who used a combination of French, Spanish, and Brazilian who were working in rural Itabuna, for example, which was a very poor rural place of northeast uh, Brazil, and were organizing workers, etc. But the bishops and the hierarchy in Brazil at that time, this is, we're talking 1960s, had been very radicalized, and they were very much into Vatican II. And of course, they were as soon as the, the subsequent politics and then uh, John Paul and Benedict, they, all these bishops were, were removed or, or were sidelined by the military in the 60s and, uh, and the 70s all the way to 1984. So, yeah, they, they, they came with their political, they weren't given any political stuff. Uh, they, they came with their own political uh, theology of liberation, which is already shaped by the priest worker movement in France. And then the second question was, uh, in terms of you, like you mentioned, the, a renewal potentially of liberation theology movements and all that stuff in Latin America, where, where do you see it? I mean, part of part of the rise of all of that stuff was notions, like you said, the, the Washington Consensus, the neoliberal politics, etc. Um, I mean, you probably heard this joke, right, that the reason there will never be a coup in the United States is because there's no American embassy, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but the point is that lots of times, you know, we speak of, let's say, someone like Hugo Chavez or some of these places, and we say, well, they're dictators because they threw out certain communities. And part of the reason they throw those communities out, honestly, is because they know certain historical realities that we don't. You know, we, they, it would be it's sad to say this, but I don't think Latin Americans can rely on U.S. citizens to stop their from doing certain things in Latin America unless they're well informed, and that is a shaky bet at best. So where do you see the new 
movements arising out of the new places of neoliberalism that are happening all over the world. What, what do you see as that? Well, I don't see I don't see much reaction in the church at this point because because most of the bishops who were supportive of this sort of renewal were removed. So the people who were replaced them, and now they're they're slowly being changed again. I mean, this is another issue, but it has to do with with the important role of of the bishop as as a pastor with the people. Um, um, Chile, I just came back from Chile, and Chile is reeling from, and they don't realize how, how, how damaged the church has been by the pedophile issue. I mean, it's, it, it's much worse in Chile than, than it's, it's closer to what happened in, in Boston, perhaps, but really a serious problem. And so you have, you have the upper class uh, in Chile, that is very, very much solid with the with the uh, sort of traditional Catholicism. Um, you have religious orders like Holy Cross and other orders that uh, have been working in poblaciones. We have a very elite school, and then we have a fiscal school in the poor section. And the problem is, uh, you come in and you you raise the standard of the school, and then the rich immediately come in. They want to they send their kids to the school, but we, we work in poblaciones, and we, we've always done that. And, and in the poblaciones, uh, when under the military coup, uh, we were targets. In fact, our school was intervened. And, and uh, Pinochet said in the public speech, Holy Cross will never return to St. George's. So, so the, the, present, the, the present opening, the response is very often through the government of the nation of the particular country to try to figure out how do you balance this inrush of globalization, that is, in, in which materialism and commerce dominate and sort of destroys the values of the rural society. Well, um, in Chile, 70% of the clergy are still foreigners. 70% of the clergy are, are foreign clergy. Spain, United States, and other places. The Latin American churches are just not producing their leaders, and that's why Protestantism is so creative in development because you have a local pastor who is from the people and knows the people, and uh, and you don't have that in the Catholic Church. So, I, yeah, I'm hoping that this Pope, anything he can do is is change the leadership direction in Latin America to become open the way it was in the 1960s when the French mission was. Father Claude, thank you. Um, you mentioned a couple of times the Washington Consensus, which you know better than I was the child of political scientists, grand theorizing, modernization theory. And the great rebuttal to modernization theory came from Latin America, dependency theory, which was pretty much truncated by the fall of communism, right? Because dependency theory was associated with communism. Yeah. And I just wonder, with all your trips to Latin America, do you have a sense that um, Latin America will again be a place for intellectually challenging modernization theory and the Washington Consensus? Well, that would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I kind of asked it better. I wanted, you know what's, what's going on now? In the democracies like Latin America, have an enormous amount of protests taking place. I mean, I, I planned all my trips for an extra hour because I had a meeting with, with Michel Bachelet, and we were we were forty five minutes late, even though we left a half an hour early from the U.S. Embassy, which was right close by, because there are protest marches all over, and and. Um, Chile right now is suffering the same thing that most Latin American countries, uh, the collapse of a lot of the commodities market. And so the budget of the government has gone way down. And to the extent that, that Chile, which has rather good social services, has to cut back on these things, there are protests, enormous protest movements. Latin American countries have been dealing with the onrush of globalization. They're not against globalization, but, but they've had to cope with it because first of all, they didn't initiate it, so they, they respond, respond passively to it. And, and so military coups is an extreme reaction to the globalization problem. 
that is a, a, a fast growth of very rich industrialists and, ex, and exporters, etc., and a marginalization of massive groups of people, including indigenous people in the South, uh, indigenous group. So uh, you cope with this as best you can. Democracies have returned to Argentina, to Chile, to Uruguay, to Brazil, everywhere. But when the democracy can't handle this, and it has a hard time because the working class knows they, they need to organize and make demands on the system, when the institutions are not well established, so the military steps in and heads roll and torture and killings. Um, it, it's the way they go. So in Chile, they're looking at what's happening in the United States and they're saying, aha, we thought that this only happened to us because you're pushing in globalization on us and now it's happening to you and you learn to cope with it because we've been coping with this for 50 years. And so we didn't even know you had that problem. What a surprise. Can I make a quick point to Loretta? Loretta, there's two authors that I really strongly recommend. One is a, a woman named Martha Honecker, who is a brilliant uh, theorist, a political theorist from Latin America. Another is a guy named Ispan Misado, who wrote a book called Beyond um, Capital. And then a third is actually, this comes from the India, from India, but her, her name is Arundhati Roy, who yeah. she wrote a book called The God of Small Things. She's yes. known as a novelist, but she's written a bunch of political yeah. theory stuff. And uh, these are two women and a guy that are doing a, a lot of real crazy things around how to engage the question of globalization. So there's a rich theory. There really is rich theory. We don't often hear of it, but it's there. And, and there are very many different, there's nothing coordinated no. yet. I mean, I, I don't know, if, you know, I, I, one would imagine that eventually maybe some current will start linking from country to country, but we're talking. We're talking about a space that is much larger than the United States. The United States fits in the Amazon, in the Amazon Valley, the entire United States. So we're talking about huge countries spread out, very underpopulated, very isolated rural areas, and and, and that has that has already had an ISIS thing in Cuba. The the the, the reaction and the violent reaction was was more violent than ISIS, and they did everything ISIS did. So. So Latin America has experienced everything that's happening in the larger world uh, a little sooner. And so they, they are, in a sense, now wondering how they're going to respond to changes in the United States, obviously, because that's an important, important thing for them. So. Is there one more question? Yes, Arthur. Claude, how, how did the priests who were coming from Germany in the 1960s get along with the priests who were coming from France? Well, there weren't a lot of, you know, that's an interesting question I haven't thought of. I didn't run across any German priests at all. There are a few for the German communities uh, in southern Chile. But um, in 1920, 70% of all Catholic missionaries in the world were French. France had this enormous expansion of missionary activity. Well, we're, we're a Holy Cross is an example of this, where young people are 17, 18, 19, 14 years old leave for New France and they go to Quebec, what is Quebec, and, and to, to, in a sense, to represent the great mission of France, the great civilizing mission of France at that time. And so there was this enormous export because of the church-state conflict in France if a young, educated, motivated French youth wanted to serve France, they couldn't do it as a entering the French government, and all work was with the French government. Right? So they they became missionaries and Catholic. A missionary saved Valparaiso in 1880 when the Spanish are trying to take that port back because Valparaiso is the port for the entire Pacific Rim, and the, the guy who, who organizes and saves. Valparaiso from the Spanish that wanted to take back Chile, that gained its independence obviously 60 years earlier, was a French missionary. Oh. Well, I'm sure Father Claude would be happy to carry on the conversation with you uh, individually uh, after the talk, but uh, for now, let's thank our speaker.
political science professor and invite my colleagues in the Department of Political Science to stand up, Bill and Gary, and just acknowledge, I don't, th I don't think anyone else is here from our department, but just acknowledge that, Claude, you have formed us as a Department of Political Science, and I think political science students, put your hands up, there's got to be a few of you. Um, I think we ought to do this every year because <laughs> you can't have this be your last lecture. I think you've had such a profound influence and you continue to. I think as a department, we just... It's not going to be his last day. You're teaching the ball, right? <laughs> you, you, pro you, you promised me I wouldn't go beyond 2026. So. Okay. okay. Well, we're negotiating. Okay. okay. If we could just publicly thank you. Loretta, I love you.